Once again, I'm Rich from GeekWithEnvy.com, and this is the Geek With Envy podcast you're listening to, episode number seven. That's right, number seven. We are rolling on. Uh, we've got lots and lots to talk about today. Uh, we're going to get right to it after we throw in a word or two about uh, how you can get a hold of us and let us know how you feel about the podcast or the website or if there's any bugs or if you have a cool story to talk about, anything like that. Uh, you can head over to geekwithenvy.com and leave a comment under any of the posts. You can go to our Facebook page and leave anything there. You can go to our Twitter page. You can go to Google+. You've got it all right there. We've got all the links on geekwithenvy.com. In the bottom right of your screen, you should see links to all those social media buttons, uh, or social media sites, I should say. Um, also, you can contact me directly at richardvincenti at geekwithenvy.com. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we really appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. Uh, we have gained more listeners since the last podcast. So that is awesome. That is really awesome. So I guess you're glad to see you guys are uh, enjoying them. So let's get right into it. We have uh, some sometimes interesting things to talk about. One of them is uh, I did discuss in a post earlier in the week Apple shuffling around some of its executive uh, powers up there and Cupertino. And one of those big changes has Jonathan Ive taking over software design. Now, he already does uh, the hardware for Apple, and I think he does a great job. It's very minimalistic, but very beautiful. I mean, I I don't think anyone would argue with you that Apple products look great. Now, plenty of people argue whether or not they're worth buying and if they if OS X's uh, worth it or not, but uh, I think it's a good operating system. But then again, that's not. Uh, I don't think most people would contest though that Apple products look great, and a lot of that has to do with Jonathan Ive. Now, on the software end of it, it's interesting to see his hands kind of molding the clay there because. There's a lot of things that Apple software has been criticized about in the past, and one of those things is the kind of uh, the little flashy things here and there that can be that a lot of people seem to think are tacky. Now, what I'm talking about and what I'm referring to are these these uh, textures that they put over a lot of their UI and things like wood grain. In fact, uh, like GarageBand has this wood grain on the sides. Uh, You have iBooks on your iOS. You have iBooks with uh, wooden bookshelves. It looks like an actual bookshelf. You have the slide-in menus uh, that have like a linen texture over top of them. And and these are all things that a lot of people see as tacky. I know some people don't like them. Uh, I think it adds kind of character to it. 
But then again, I'm not really so attached to these things that if they were gone, I, I don't think I would necessarily be that upset. But I know that Jonathan Ive has been known for keeping things very simple and very clean. And that would basically say that Jonathan Ive would most likely want to remove these things now that he's able and in a position where he can do that. Because uh, there have been many arguments in the past over such items between executives at Apple over these design features, and perhaps Jonathan Ive will remove them. Now, we haven't seen anything yet, obviously, but uh, it's cur it makes me curious to think what exactly could change. Uh, there's a few other things that I pointed out, too. I do like the way that iOS handles open applications uh, by keeping them out of view at the bottom of the screen. So you use your five fingers and you swipe up, and you got all your open apps at the bottom, and you can close them if you want, or you can open one of the other ones that you uh, had open previously. And I think it's very clean, and it's done very well. Now, I wonder if something will be brought to iOS, or I'm sorry, uh, Mac OS like this, where maybe the docs suddenly disappears, and we kind of see something similar to that. Um, and also, if that does happen, we're going to have to have a way to get access to the Launchpad. Now, if you're not familiar with OS X, Launchpad essentially uh, brings up a, an interface of apps. It brings up all your icons. It looks just like iOS right on your Mac. So, And that's pretty neat because that interface is very uh, useful. And it works great uh, using a, a touchpad or anything uh, just as well as it does if you're using a, a, a touch interface on an iPad. So I think that would be something that we may see in the future. I'm not 100% sure if the dock will disappear. I know they can't get rid of the trash can. I mean, that, I mean that's kind of, that's been there forever. What would they do? I don't maybe they can, I don't know. But, uh, geez, it's, desktops are getting into a really weird territory, aren't they? I mean, it's kind of like this half and half in between thing, like, they want to be more like mobile, but then they don't want to be more like mobile, but they want to be able to, be, you know, to work well with touch, but they still need to work well with the mouse and keyboard. So it's like it's like a constant battle right now uh, of which direction works best. And I think Windows 8 is <laughs> is the epitome of this art, you know, this problem right now. I mean, they've got uh Windows 8 I've been using it for some time now. I mentioned this in like the last three podcasts, but Windows 8 is is very, uh, oh boy, I don't know. It's got Windows users fragmented. Let's put it that way. I know that it, it's weird. It's very weird. I spend a lot of the time in the desktop zone, and I've been trying to break out of it. I've been trying to use the tile thing, and I just... Um, Huh, I'm not feeling it. I don't know. I mean, I think they're beautiful. These full-screen apps are amazing looking, but I just I can't seem to get away from the desktop, and I think that's because there's just too many things that I need there still. Um, and one of the things I notice is lack of complete a complete control panel outside of the desktop area, of out of the desktop environment. When we go back into the new style windows, the tile area, the new start area, 
there's no way that I can tell to access your control panel features through that mechanism. You have to go back to the desktop. So again, uh, in a little off topic, but not really because I guess we are talking UI design here and simplifying it and going forward and Windows 8 is far from simplified and so is OS 10. OS 10 isn't, is, works really well but I mean I, I guess anything can be improved a little bit, right? I don't know. Uh, some would argue to leave well enough alone, right? It's worked as for as many years as it has the way it is just fine but I, I have a feeling we're gonna start seeing some of these decorations uh, window decorations and things like that taken out of OS 10 and iOS uh, and I think uh, that will make I very happy to see that happen so we'll have to wait and see but it's interesting it is interesting uh, it's definitely something that's worth thinking about because it really does have us thinking what exactly is coming down next what is the next gen operating system? I'm not talking about Windows 8. I mean, because Windows 8 almost isn't next gen, right? It's like a step in that direction. But we all know, and by looking at it, that there's something, some big change is going to happen. There's no way I can't, I can't imagine that uh, Windows 8 is going to exist as it does today for the next five or ten years even. I'm waiting for SP, the service pack, to come out and start moving stuff around and start changing things. And then uh, after service pack number two or whatever, maybe we'll start to see what Windows 8's really going to look like. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, the public kind of ends up being the guinea pig here. And <laughs> what sucks is... We, they may come out with the best for next-gen version of Windows, but they might charge you for it. And in the meantime, you're paying for, you know, for them to figure it out. But, I mean, I guess that makes sense, but, you know, in the meantime, when you're using this Windows 8, which is just, for me personally, it's just weird. I want to try, I'm really trying to like it, but it's just, I, I see the potential, it's just difficult to use. And OS 11 or whatever the next iteration of Mac OS is going to be, I can tell you one thing, it's going to be very clean. I'm imagining that it's going to be very clean, and I'm also uh, meaning that the decorations are going to be pulled from it. I'm just seeing that happen. Uh, maybe I could, I could be wrong, but I, I don't know about that. I, I want to say they're going to go. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen with the dock or anything like that, um, but... Again, Windows went with the direction of more of like their mobile software, and uh, Mac has already kind of done that. They have the Launchpad, which is very, very similar to iOS. So maybe more of a iOS-type look to OS 11, or whatever you want to call it. That's a big version change. I don't know how they're going to do it or how they're going to handle it, but Jonathan Ive is definitely going to have a part in it or have something to say about it. So we'll see what happens. I guess we will just have to wait and see what happens. Uh, more, more and more news on Mars. And it's bugging me. It's bugging me big time because I want to know what the heck is going on up there. And we, we can't know. Apparently, there is 
big discovery that has gone down at NASA. It's a huge discovery on Mars. They are calling the discovery Earth-shaking. Earth-shaking. And they can't tell us. They can't tell us what it is. They have to be sure. They absolutely have to be sure that the results that they found, whatever they are, are 100% legitimate and 100% spot on, right, before they can tell us. And in the meantime, the guys like us out here who want to know can't know. And man, is that irritating. It's driving me crazy because what could it be? And here's the thing. When it comes to scientific discovery and things being quote-unquote earth-shaking, some things are earth-shaking to some people, while other things, not so much. It could be the presence of some type of material they've never seen on Mars before, and that could be this huge discovery, right? And be like, oh, we found this thing we've never expected to see here before, which would be cool, but not everybody would agree that that would be earth-shaking. However, one thing that I think we would all agree on as being earth-shaking is they found some gigantic, I don't know, colony of bacteria. Whether it's alive or dead, it doesn't matter. That's a huge discovery. There was life on Mars or there is life on Mars would be a universally earth-shaking uh, revelation. It'd be amazing. The discovery of that would be absolutely amazing. Uh, similar to an underground ocean <laughs> would be a, another thing that would just absolutely be stunning, right? Now, don't get me wrong, none of these things are any less interesting. It's just not everybody might feel that way about it. So what they're talking about, we really don't know, and we won't know. So what have they done? What have they been doing up there? Well, Curiosity, uh, the, or the Mars rover, has been driving around on Mars, and it has an instrument known as SAM. And SAM is able to determine what's inside a particular sample by analyzing it and then letting us know what it's made up of. Now, apparently they found something in a soil sample, and that's where the earth-shaking part comes in. And they're saying we won't have any details on it for possibly uh, a few weeks, a few more weeks. So that's a long wait but in terms of discovery, I guess it's just a blink of the eye, but in the meantime, we have to wait. So we'll keep you posted on that, but there is something going on up there. And as soon as we find out, we will be posting it immediately. So keep, uh, keep an eye on your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed for our latest posts on Mars and Martian activity, because we will be putting that up there as soon as we find out, believe me, I'm... Uh, stalking all my sources right now, <laughs> trying paying very close attention to what's going on with NASA to see if anything has popped up, and we haven't found anything uh, yet, so we're still waiting. Uh, we're doing a new section on geekwithenvy.com. We're going to have something called the Featured Apps section, which if you look at the very top, there's a link there that says Featured Apps. We're going to be putting uh, apps through the uh, review process, essentially. And we're going to be checking things out, and whatever we find that's really cool, we're going to throw it up there, try and kind of get the word out and spread uh, 
spread the word about some of these cool apps that are coming out. And they are not just tied down to one operating system. We are going to be doing them for PC now, for Windows 8, since Windows is now in the app business fully. We will be doing them for iOS. We will be doing them for Mac OS. So uh, kind of semi-regular with that too. So whatever pops up that we find is really cool or we see it's getting a lot of attention, uh, we're going to try to uh, check those things out for you and provide some content so you guys know uh, what's good out there. Because there are a lot of good apps, and I think so, we've done two recently. Uh, we had uh, Carlene posted one um, for Happy Street, which is a pretty fun and addictive game. I've had a chance to take a look at it, so uh, if you're into those kind of games, I mean, you almost can't help but be into these kinds of games because they pull you in. They really are good at getting you to come back. They They beckon you. They say, hey, you need to restock the store and you need to do this and do that and before you know it uh you know many hours of your life are just gone right <laughs> in, the, in what seems like a flash but you just can't seem to get away from it and happy street is uh one of those featured apps it was actually the first app to trigger and to be put categorized as a featured app so we throw up some pictures some screenshots if we've got some good video on it we'll do some video if we don't have video we'll try to take a video of it and uh We'll also give you some links on where you can get this stuff too. So, uh, some of these might be on both the App Store and um, Google Play. So, either way, check them out. Uh, we haven't really categorized them that way. I guess we don't really need to. So, again, uh, let's see. Happy Street is available for the App Store and Google Play. We also did another one for. Daily Wallpapers for Windows 8. This is a pretty cool app. Uh, I have one of these apps on for OS 10 too. There is a Daily Wallpaper, HD Daily Wallpaper for OS 10, which I, should, I think I should put that up there. Maybe I'll make a post for that. It's really cool, and they have some really great uh, high-definition wallpapers, and so does Daily Wallpapers. So if you don't like the wallpapers that came with Windows 8, you're like, these are nice but I'm looking for something just a little bit more my style. Well, and you don't know what to look for and you don't know where to look, well, Daily Wallpapers can bring it right into your desktop through the app. You don't even have to go on the web. You just open up the app and bam, right there. You've got Daily Wallpapers. You've got customization. Um, it'll help you customize your Windows lock screen. You get daily images so you can find something specific or check out images that are trending all with an easy-to-navigate UI. The app also allows you to preview your lock screen before applying, which is definitely nice. You can also pull images from your camera or hard drive, and now the app offers support for Facebook and SkyDrive. So super, super awesome, super useful app. And again, that's daily wallpapers for Windows 8. You can go to the Windows Store right now and, and download it for the amazing price of free. Now, speaking of apps, brings up a good question. There are a ton of new apps being created every day for Windows 8 now that there is an app store. And I think we've all heard the term, there's an app for that, over and over and over the last few years. But have any of us stopped and asked, do we really need an app for that? Well, that's the thing of it. That's, that's, that's the question I asked. Both OS X and Windows have 
app stores that we can get many of our favorite applications all in one place. And we also have peace of mind when it comes to security because they are put through a series of standards that they need to meet and certification processes before they are put in the store. Which is nice. It's really nice. Now, the problem is, do we really need an app for that when we have our web browser? Let's take Netflix, for example. This is an application that works really well in a web browser. It was designed for that. Been using it that way essentially since its inception, right? So it makes me wonder, why do I need an app? And actually, what kind of prompted this question to come up, for me at least, is I've been using Netflix, the app, and it's been kind of buggy, and I've had a few problems here and there. So then I close it, and I open up Safari or Firefox or Internet Explorer or whatever, and I open it up, and I use it in there. And I'm like, okay, now I can watch it, and it's a lot less buggy. Why? Because it's been around for a lot longer than the app, and it just works. And I thought, why the heck do I really need to go to an app when I have it bookmarked in my browser? It only takes one second to click. I log in like I normally would, and bam, I'm good. I'm good to go. So why the heck do I need an app? And I started thinking about it, a lot of things are like this. I mean, Hulu, not just Netflix or Hulu, not just streaming either. I mean, there's a lot of applications that I'm just not sure we need as applications. They work well enough on the web. Now, some things work really well as applications, I believe. And those would be things like mail. Mail applications are really nice because everything's consolidated. All my mailboxes can be put together into one giant mailbox, and I can receive all my mail, and I don't have to go out on the web for it. Sometimes I just happen to be doing some other task besides browsing the web, which is, you know, rare, but a lot of times I'll just turn on the computer, and, and I'll see the little mail icon and say, hey, you, you got some extra mail here. I open that thing up, and bam, I can check up my, my email messages and be done. I don't have to go on any websites and... Uh, log in. I don't have to go to multiple websites and log in. I have all my email coming into one place from multiple email systems. That's really nice. That's where an app works. And I think a lot of people who create apps need to consider these things when they make apps. Is what makes your app more useful than just going to the website? Why should I download software to my computer for you when I can just go to the website. And I don't think a lot of app developers are are considering these things. I think they're just cranking out apps because they can. And most of them are free. I mean, it's not like we're paying for these things, but there are a few we pay for. But the ones that we pay for, they've gone out of their way to make sure that they have features that go above and beyond. Right? So, just an interest, interesting thing, I mean, again, and this is all because we're in this weird phase. We're in this really weird phase right now with computing. We've got these mobile devices, and we've got these desktop devices. And we don't seem to know what we want to do with them. So it's like, well, we have apps on our mobile devices, well, I want apps on my computer, too. But then, what am I doing with these apps? I'm just having apps just to have apps? 
That doesn't make any sense. But yet it's happening. It's happening right now. And it's confusing. And it's weird. And it, I guess it's just part of the evolution of the PC. And when I say PC, I mean all personal computers. I'm talking about tablets, Macs, PCs, you know, Windows machines, Linux machines. I don't care if it doesn't have any, if it's capable of doing apps, if it's capable of crunching numbers, it's, it's a computer. It's a personal computer. And all of them are going through an evolutionary phase right now. And we are seeing some massive changes. And I don't think anybody knows what to do. I think we're just trying a little bit of everything and seeing what works and what doesn't. It's like a big trial and error thing. And these companies are just cranking out apps. Actually, I've sat down and thought about it myself. Is there anything that I could do? Is there an app that I could write that would be useful? I don't know. Maybe not. Is it anything? It's not anything you can't get from a website, right? Now, sometimes, like a website can offer a lot more, and maybe people want to condense that a little bit and have it all come into the application in a neat, easy-to-read mobile format. But we're talking not just about mobile now. We're talking about large tablets. We're talking about laptops, where we don't need that stuff. Just go to the website. Experience it in its fullness. Experience it the way, you know, I mean, what are we doing? I don't know. Are we trying to get rid of the web altogether? Maybe that's the thing. Maybe we just move completely to an app. Why have websites at all? Why type in WW anything? Maybe we just click the app and open the app. Maybe that's the way we should go. Instead of not having any apps, let's just have everything an app. Maybe that's what we're doing. Maybe that is the key. Maybe that is the next step to the next-gen operating system. Maybe the Internet will be something completely different than it is today. Will the web browser become obsolete? I don't know. What sounds easier to you? Now, granted, there are buttons. We can do the bookmark button, as I mentioned before, but let's just eliminate the web browser altogether. What if you could just click the app, get the information you need full screen, and be done? No address typing. You didn't have to look up the address in the first place. You just went straight to the app. The address is handled privately. Web browsers would only be needed for people who are webmasters and need to do other things. I don't know. Kind of interesting. Not sure what direction we're going to go. Right now it's 50-50. I don't know if it makes sense to go one direction. Maybe there's just some things that need to be in half and some things that don't. But as of right now, there's a lot of stuff in between and a lot of things work a lot better in the web browser, let me tell you that much, because it's been around a lot more. This realm of apps is new. And these programmers are just trying to get, you know, settled in with the new Windows 8. With, uh, heck, they might even be using Visual Studio 11. Uh, God, who knows? You know, they've got, maybe they're on the beta version still. I don't know. But either way, they're, they don't, you know, they're just trying things too. But it just, you know, it begs the question, do I really need this? So, interesting stuff.
I did uh I did put another post in there on uh on just that issue. It is do we really need certain apps for our PC? And if you haven't read it, uh, you can go ahead and check it out. Go a little bit more in depth. Talk a little bit about OS 10 and my usage of Netflix. And I also talk about uh, now that web browsers are so powerful and now that they're starting to utilize our GPU, um, that also kind of brings in the question, do we really need the app? Because we're getting all the horsepower we need from our web-based applications now. I mean, they, and actually it's kind of funny because in a way, <laughs> uh, it's not really a website versus an app. It's It's an app versus an app. It's just one app is in a window and one app is not in a window, if you get where I'm going with this. I mean, they're all applications. When you go to a website, I mean, when you go to Facebook, that that's an application. There's no, you know, there's really no difference. Um, but just very interesting, very interesting topic. Curious to see where that goes. Also, ah, yes, getting back into science. Uh, geology, in fact. The ticking time bomb of the U.S., crazy title, right? What the heck does that mean? Well, it's an interesting topic. I've been uh, I've been kind of interested in this for many years, and I started thinking about it the other day, and that is the idea that we live, or the fact that we live, among giants. And among giants, and when I refer to giants, I'm talking about supermassive volcanoes. Now, a lot of us, I think many of us, don't even realize that we have supermassive volcanoes right here in the U.S. In fact, I would go as far to say is that there are probably quite a few people out here uh, in the U.S. that don't realize that we have active volcanoes within the United States. Now, it's just something that we don't think about very often. When we think about volcanoes, most of us think about Hawaii, right? We go, oh, kill away. Oh, yeah, we think about lava flows and all that crazy stuff. But a lot of the time, we don't think about our backyard right here in the United States, and we have a lot of active volcanoes here. And the other thing is we have also got these not-so-active volcanoes that are kind of quiet right now, and they're super massive. They have amazing geological features like Yellowstone for example we've got geysers hot springs mud pots there's all these crazy cool things that we go to see every year and we don't really think too much about them we never realize many of us don't even realize that when you're visiting Yellowstone you're uh, Yellowstone you're standing right on top of a giant supervolcano and you think that's crazy right yeah, but it's true it's massive. And you say, well, what happened to Yellowstone? Or I've heard of Yellowstone, and I've seen it, but I've never seen a giant volcano there. What the heck are you talking about? Well, that's the thing. It is so massive. I mean, it sounds completely ridiculous, but it's so massive that you can actually almost completely miss it. You have to go way up in the atmosphere looking down just to really see the caldera of this massive volcano. But once you get up there and once you look at these 
pictures that I posted on the website from the United States Geological Service, uh, you can see the USGS has posted uh, the U.S. Geological Survey a picture of uh, a map of the area that shows you the caldera. And there's a few sections there where it's a dotted line and they're not exactly sure where the edge of the caldera is. But if you look at it, it's, it's massive. Many miles across. And what's even more interesting is that this hot spot has been moving over the years. And it's not so much that the hot spot itself is moving, but the plates. Obviously, we have plate tectonics going on right now. And these plates, the continental plate is moving. And that hot spot is changing its location because of that. So the hot spot stays and the crust moves over top. And Yellowstone, actually the supermassive volcano uh, of Yellowstone, used to be further southwest. And it has slowly moved. Well, the plate has slowly moved, changing its location ever so slightly. But obviously it is now where current Yellowstone uh, is, current day Yellowstone National Park. And the first thing we talk about is, okay, well we know it exists in the Yellowstone Plateau, but when can we expect an eruption? Well, as of right now, we have no idea. Uh, our best scientists can only guess when it comes to the likelihood of an eruption of one of these massive supervolcanoes. In fact, we have a very, very difficult time predicting anything. Anything. We don't know when a massive earthquake is going to strike most of the time. We, can, we, we know a lot more than we used to. There are other smaller volcanoes, uh, Mount St. Helens. We really don't know what the heck's going on with Mount St. Helens, let alone a supermassive volcano. Mount St. Helens uh, went off in 1980, and that was a pretty big deal. I mean, if you, um, I'm sure you've heard of Mount St. Helens, and we really didn't know that was going to happen until, jeez, I mean, until it happens. We, we really have a very small understanding of our planet. And it's kind of scary, but we're doing our best. And the USGS is out there, and, and, and they're working hard to try to figure these things out. And it's also important to note that they're not working hard to stop these things. They're just trying to figure them out. They're just trying to give us some time. They're just trying to give us a little warning to let us know, hey, this thing's going to blow up in a couple weeks. I mean, a couple weeks, yeah, oh, crap. you know how amazing that would be to say, look, in three weeks, there's a really good chance that Mount St. Helens is going to go off again. Or, you know, uh, Yellowstone is going to, well, Yellowstone, man, boy, we would hope we would know when Yellowstone was going to blow. If you look on the website, I posted a ash impact map from the USGS. And you can see just how large of an ash bed there would be if Yellowstone just went off. And it covers nearly half of the United States. The lower 48, half of the lower 48 covered in ash to some extent. That's unbelievable. And that will absolutely change the climate. It will definitely dramatically change the climate if that happens. And we're going to have some serious problems as a human population if that thing goes off. If any of these supermassive volcanoes around the world go off. That's the other thing. It's not just Yellowstone. We've got Lake Toba in Indonesia. We've got Arya, Japan. 
Long Valley, California, the Valles Caldera in New Mexico, and Lake Taupo, Taupo sorry, in New Zealand. So we've got many of these things around, and they all could be game changers. And we're talking about tons and tons of magma. Tons of magma. We got a thousand kilometers, cubic kilometers plus of of magma. I mean, it's just unbelievable if these things go off. Many times that of the Mount St. Helens blast in 1980, and Mount St. Helens was 0.25 cubic kilometers of magma versus over a thousand. I mean, it's just, oh, it's just hard to imagine such a massive, massive explosion. But it could happen. In fact, uh, besides these supermassive volcanoes, we also have Mount Rainier right here in our backyard. Right around the corner, there's Mount Rainier, and uh, it's got... It's one of the most dangerous volcanoes in the world. It's classified as one of the most dangerous volcanoes in the world. And this is not a supervolcano. Now, the reason it's noted to be one of the most dangerous volcanoes in the world is that Mount Rainier is very close to a large population. It's right next to Seattle and Tacoma. And a lot of these cities, I mean, just, just around the way are, uh, I mean, we've got... Uh, Geez, what's down there? We, we've got cities like uh, um, Auburn and things like that, and, and they're just right in the path of, of danger if this thing does decide to go off. Now, I do want to mention that this volcano uh, has been deemed to be relatively inactive for the most part. Well, it's active, but it's um, it hasn't shown any signs of of you know having an eruption anytime soon it's been relatively stable for the last thousand years or so but if you look in the history you can see that the path of the lahars where the lahars went down in the valleys there through the rivers and eventually out into puget sound you can see that that's pretty scary over there i mean the seattle area could be dealing with uh anything from uh, lahars or if you're even close, you got pyroclastic flows coming down that hill if that thing decides to go. But uh, nonetheless, and that's not even a supermassive volcano. We're talking about Yellowstone, where tons of states are affected by this. Multiple states. Half of the the lower 48 could be in serious impacts immediately. And after that, we're talking about climate climatological change from all the ash in the atmosphere. We're talking about cooling the planet. And if you also think about half of the United States, that's also where all of our food is grown. So now we have a huge problem with our food supply. But yeah, Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, Yellowstone, all of these volcanoes exist. They're not all super volcanoes, but they're here and we don't think about them too often. But boy, is that uh, interesting. The geology of the United States and the geology around the world, and the fact that these supervolcanoes exist is just amazing. And hopefully, uh, we can begin to understand enough of them to at least save some lives and give us some warning. In fact, the last time, uh, a lot of people tend to look at past eruptions 
to try to predict future eruptions. So they'll say, well, when was the last eruption? Okay, well, when was the last before that? Oh, okay, well, we're probably overdue, or maybe we're not due for another X amount of years. Well, they're doing that with the supermassive volcano, which does not always mean you can't take it, uh, you know, as as fact. I mean, it's just a prediction here. It's just numbers. I mean, we can't really uh, conclude when we're going to see the next eruption based on just a, a few data points. We can only look at three data points and say, oh, well, the next one's got to be that. No, we have to have more information. But if we did use these three data points uh, for our supermassive volcano in Yellowstone, we would say that the first eruption was about that we know of was about 2.1 million years ago. Then the next eruption was at 1.3 million. And then the most recent was about 640,000 years ago. So if we use just those three data points, uh, we would determine that the next supervolcano, the, or what they're calling a caldera-forming eruption, so that's the worst-case scenario, is approximately due or due in approximately 90,000 years from today, if we go by this scale, which we shouldn't, because we do not have enough data. But if it makes you feel better, you could go by that data. But really, we don't have any idea. That's just our best guess. I hope it's at least 90,000 years away. Because maybe by then we'll have a better way of predicting these things. But they're doing their best. They're absolutely doing their best. And should we worry about these sleeping giants? No. But knowing they exist is important. In fact, knowing that any volcano exists is important, not just supervolcanoes. Mention Mount St. Helens. I mentioned Mount Rainier. And that's just here in the U.S. You know, it's you should know about them. You should understand the history of them, especially if you if you live by them and they're right around your corner. Uh, you know, it probably helps to know a little bit about it because it's. I mean, why not? It's part of your world, and they could potentially be very dangerous. Now, hopefully, none of these things go off, and if they do, hopefully, they're on a very small scale. Most. Most of the research so far has suggested that at least the smaller volcanoes, these non-supervolcanoes, uh, are relatively quiet for the most part and shouldn't have too much going on in the next few years. But again, that's just based on what we can see. And again, our, our prediction, our ability to predict volcano volcanic eruptions is, is very small right now. We can't really give much warning at all unless we can get some earthquakes or something like that and correlate the data and uh, you know we start seeing some funky things we do see a little sometimes we do get a little bit of a warning but it's normally very very short a very short window uh, that we have to warn people and what's worse is that they if they get it wrong if they warn people and nothing happens they lose faith they lose faith in the science which is really bad because they could be off by just a few days, and these people are going to go back. They're going to say, evacuate the area, this thing is going to blow, and then it doesn't. And they say, well, what the heck? And they go, we got to get back home, we got things to do, we got to have food, we got to do everything. And they start heading back, and then bam, that's when it goes. And that is the absolute worst case scenario. So it's a tr it's tricky business. It really is. It's tricky business trying to get these things predicted. And I do not envy the task at all, but I appreciate the science, and hopefully it will continue to improve. I'm sure it will. 
But I thought that was interesting. I had to throw that up there. Volcanoes. I hadn't talked about those in a while. And then, uh, maybe you haven't even thought about volcanoes in a while. Well, here it is. We've got... Uh, had, definitely go to the website and check this one out. Because we've got all kinds of cool maps up there from the USGS. And they're really cool to look at. In fact, after you're done with that, head on over to the USGS site and check out everything they have to offer. Because they have some really cool stuff. And you can read facts about any volcano any volcanic activity going on out there, any seismic activity. The USGS has got some pretty interesting work going on out there, and they are dealing with forces of nature that are just unbelievably massive and hard to understand, and it's just incredible. It's incredible science. A lot of kudos to those guys. Well, about ready to wrap things up. I uh, did want to mention... There is a new how-to on the website. We try to bring those up every once in a while. We keep adding how-tos and guides to the website. We did a, uh, a fun one, a how-to play Diablo 2 Lord of Destruction on Windows 8. If you're, if you're a fan of Diablo 2 and you still play, and there's uh, many of us who still do, I'm one of those included, you'll know, uh, undoubtedly notice that there are quite a few problems in uh, in running Diablo in Windows 8, it's very laggy, it's very glitchy, it does not run smoothly at all. And if you check out the guide on the website, I give you some uh, ways you can get around that. And some of that re uh, involves you adjusting your compatibility settings in Windows 8 for that particular application. And it also includes the use of one of the most important features, which is obtaining a 3DFX Glide Wrapper. If you're not familiar with a wrapper, is a little application that basically allows you to use the Glide interface with Diablo 2. And Glide is something that uh, you would not normally have the opportunity to use with today's uh, with a modern video card, and that's something that Diablo was built around, and it works best when you set it uh, to use Glide. And the 3DFX Glide Wrapper will help you do that. So uh, go ahead and check out the posts. It has instructions on how to set up your compatibility settings and also how to obtain Glide. The OpenGL Glide 3 Wrapper from Sven, which I have tried personally and it works very well. It is free and it is designed specifically for Diablo 2 Lord of Destruction. So. Uh, it really has made me happy because now it works for me. It's been working perfectly, and hopefully uh, uh, you will see the same results. So go ahead and check that out. Once again, you can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+. Uh, we have a YouTube page now. We're putting videos up on there. We've got an RSS feed. You can subscribe to that. And be sure to check back on the website regularly uh, because we're always posting new and fresh content. So once again, I appreciate you checking out our podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Richard Vincenti with geekwithenvy.com, and you have a great day. <laughs>